0: All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We do a special taping of the program here at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper, uh, who also has his own program, the Week-to-Week Political Roundtable Talk, and he's also the Vice President of Media here at the Commonwealth Club, a.k.a. the Boss. (laughs) (laughs) Or my boss. No. Um, uh, We're excited. We're excited to do this. We have a great program today. Uh, We're going to talk about HIV prevention and tools to address those at risk. A lot of progress has been made, especially with PrEP, uh, pre exposure prophylaxis, the pill. And um, in speaking with Dr. Volk or- earlier before we started the program, there's a lot of exciting news, such as a prediction tool. And so we'll talk about that prediction tool as well as outreach to those who might be more at risk. So we'll welcome our guests today, Dr. Jonathan Volk of Kaiser Permanente and Felipe Flores of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Welcome, y'all. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Happy to be here. So, yeah,
0: I think you know where we start is uh, a a very general question. We'll start with you, Dr. Volk, and kind of going back before we even get to a prediction tool and why why it would be beneficial to have one paired with Prep. Um, But maybe talk a little bit about the effectiveness of Prep uh, from when it was when it first when we first started offering it to where we're at today, which. There's a lot to say. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, for sure. Uh, So uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, um, our first medication was FDA-approved back in 2012, so about seven years ago now. Uh, In the clinical trials, the initial clinical trial of PrEP, which was among uh, men who have sex with men and transgender women, um, there was a significant but not overwhelming decrease in new HIV infections among people who were taking the medication. Um, We started providing it uh, right after FDA approval in 2012, and what we pleasantly found is actually this medication in real-world clinical practice works far better than it actually did in clinical trials, partly because adherence to the medication was low in the clinical trial setting. And like many other medications, if you don't take it, it doesn't work. Uh, But with PrEP, when you take it, it works incredibly well. And we found um, with basically thousands of person years of follow-up, so many, many patients using this medication for several years, really no new HIV infections among people taking the medication. Uh, And we now know that uh, PrEP, when taken daily, is more than 99% effective uh, at preventing HIV infection. So we have an incredibly powerful tool, a pill that someone can take um, to basically prevent HIV infection.
2: And now I'm obviously a non-expert in medicine, but is the, can you explain to the non-experts what that, how exactly it prevents it? What's it? Is it blocking something? Is it, is it killing the virus? I mean, what, what is it doing actually?
1: So it contains two HIV medications. Uh, so it's basically part of a full treatment regimen. So an HIV treatment re- regimen usually contains three drugs, mm-hmm. sometimes two, but usually three drugs. Um, and it blocks um, one of the, um, the steps in the HIV replication. And so basically it can prevent the, rep- the infection from ever basically taking hold. So you're blocking the infection from before it happens, and part of the reason that the drugs were, were chosen for prep uh, is because these medications concentrate and have hot, good drug levels in rectal tissue and vaginal um, mucosa, um, and so the choice of these medications was partly because of where these me- medications concentrate.
0: Now let's get to the prediction tool, which um, you know, if we talk about the effectiveness of of prep. And also a campaign like Getting to Zero and, you know, wonderful, amazing HIV advocates here in our community who are doing great work. It's exciting to think about the, the potential of getting to zero, meaning no new you know, infections at all. Um, but why would we need a prediction tool if, you know, we're doing there's, – there's so much progress to this work.
1: Yeah. So we have a medication that works. It works really well when people take it. Uh, but we're still missing folks we're having trouble um, identifying uh, people who may be at risk for HIV and helping them to um, get started on pre-exposure prophylaxis. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, one of the challenges, I think providers are not very good at assessing risk for patients. I think there's you know, competing interests in a busy clinical practice. Some providers may be less comfortable taking a sexual history or having a conversation with their patients about sex or may um, have... Um, not be doing a good job at assessing their patient's risk, having misperceptions about what their patient's risk is for HIV. And so we wanted to know is whether we could use existing data in in the medical record to help identify potential candidates for PrEP. Can we look at information that's already available in the chart? For example, demographics, sexual uh, history of testing for sexually transmitted infections, um, use of meds for erectile dysfunction or treatment for syphilis uh, or urine positivity for, um, you know, substances like methadone. Could we use those factors to prospectively identify people who may be at highest risk for HIV infection. And so we were able to develop this model, initially starting with over 80 variables from the medical record. The final model included over 40 different variables. And what we found is that if you look at um, the highest 2% of risk scores within our 4 million patients at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, we could prospectively identify about 50% of our HIV infections among our male patients. Um, And our hope is that we can now use this tool to integrate it into our medical record to help facilitate conversations between providers and their patients about HIV and sexually transmitted infections. Um, No prediction model is going to be perfect. So there's going to be people who are at risk for HIV who may not be picked up in the model. And there's going to be people in the model who may not actually be at risk for HIV. But I think certainly having that conversation is always a good thing for providers to be having with their patients. Um, And so... Using this model, we can hopefully um, facilitate those conversations and help link people to care. One of the challenges, and I know we'll probably talk more about this, and I think this is, in my mind, one of the biggest challenges we have for PrEP right now, is that there are, despite the fact that we have this incredibly effective medication, there's very big disparities in who's accessing it. Um, Even within an insured population like Kaiser Permanente, um, only um, 4% of our current PrEP users are black, but about a quarter of our new new HIV infections are in that population. And so seeing really big disparities between who's accessing this med and who's getting infected. And the challenge there is if we see differential uptake of medications like PrEP, we're going to end up seeing increases in in disparities rather than decreases. And I think one of the really exciting things about our model is if you look at traditional CDC risk factors, so things like sexually transmitted infections and identifying as a man who has sex with men, um, it underestimates risk among certain populations, including black men who have sex with men, uh, because those things may be underreported in the, in the medical record or not provided to their, shared with their providers. Um, our prediction model, which uses kind of a more robust uh, data from the medical record, actually had equal sensitivity and does a much better job identifying our black men who have sex with men who may be at risk for HIV. Go ahead, John. I have a question
2: really for both of you. And, and just to go back to something you just said about uh, the large number of people who maybe should be taking PrEP who are not or whatever regimen. Um, why are they not? Is it, is it cost? Is it just uh, they don't know about it? Is it, you know, it, not enough education on it, Felipe?
3: Yeah. Um, the way that we kind of talk about folks who may benefit from it, kind of some of the barriers are like there are different steps. Mm-hmm. So the first is awareness. So not everyone knows about the medication, know that's um, applicable to them or something they may benefit from. Um, so there are a lot of great campaigns locally and nationally, but sometimes the messaging has been more towards like gay men, which um, not everyone who may benefit from PrEP identifies as a gay man. Um, so you're losing, like, some folks, maybe people who inject drugs, um, cis women, trans communities. So first is just general awareness. Then you may know about it, but there may not be a provider in your area. So there's still provider deserts throughout California, throughout the country where people just can't find a provider that's willing to prescribe it or is able to prescribe it or knows how to, um, And then the cost side of it, Mm -hmm. you know, so you may be eager, ready to start, but then you may go to the doctor's office, get a huge copay, have to like meet your deductible and all these costs associated with just being on the medication, which deters people, um, for us, uh, some of the efforts that we've been doing over at Magnet, um, the sexual health clinic in the Castro, is really to focus our outreach effort um, to, like what Jonathan was saying, to communities of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so every Thursday night at Strut, we have what we call CutiePuck at Strut, which is queer and trans people of color at Strut. So every week we create low-threshold programming um, that changes every week. Sometimes it's a film screening, a workshop, a do-it-yourself um, type of presentation or a panel discussion to invite those communities to our site. And then when, we're, when they're there, we actually reserve our clinical um, appointments for people to engage in, in them. So that's been a huge way that we've been trying to address it. So since we started last September... Um, From September to September uh, 2019, we've enrolled 106 folks onto PrEP um, just from Thursdays from 5 to 8. We've had 45 events, over 1,000 people come through, and we're seeing about a third of the people coming into the the programming are accessing um, sexual health services at the same time. Um, And we're seeing that about a third of the people coming, or actually it's their first time coming to get um, tested at our clinic. So. It's been one way that we've been trying to kind of get ahead of the disparities that Jonathan was kind of mentioning. Yeah, one of the things trying to get at this exact
1: question, we, we actually did a survey and outreach to our patients with new HIV infections, so recently acquired HIV, to specifically ask about that. Had they had conversations about PrEP? Were they aware of it? What were the barriers that had prevented them from accessing PrEP? Um, knowledge actually was the number one reason, but what was interesting is if you look over time that had, that we're doing a better and better job as far as increasing awareness of PrEP. So certainly if you look at 2014 versus 2017, a huge increase in awareness of this medication, um, perceptions of risk, I think is also a challenge, um, Folks may um, say, well, you know, I don't, I don't see myself as being particularly high risk for HIV. I only have, you know, a couple partners a month or one partner every couple months. And we're seeing a lot of infections in that population. And so really increasing some um, awareness and helping providers have that conversation with patients as well. And then um, this uh, to add on about cost, I think some of it is, is cost itself. And some of it is also perception of cost. So, some of our patients uh, have heard that this medication is really expensive and so may not even try to access it, not realizing that there are programs through the state of California that can help uh, pay for the medication. There's uh, pharmaceutical rebate programs that will reimburse up to $7,200 a year in copays. And so, the, for the, actually, for the vast majority of patients, we can get this medication for uh, usually free, um, in in most situations. So, if if there's a patient who is wondering about that, should they talk to their doctor? Should is there
2: a, should they talk to the state? I mean, where should they go to you? And I mean, where, where should they find that info? Because so, they might not know it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would encourage people who are interested in prepper or who think that they may be um, um, that this may be something that's right for them to to not let cost be the barrier to accessing it Um, there are resources i think it depends on where you're accessing prep what those resources might be i know some programs have navigators that will help people get through the the process of applying for the the state assistance or through the copay assistance program Um, certainly when we have patients come to see us at uh, kaiser permanente uh, we will help them apply for that and give them all the information they need to access the programs
3: Yeah, I'd say one resource that we usually point people towards is PleasePrepMe.org. In California, they actually have a chat where you can actually talk to someone in real time to ask some of those questions like, oh, I have this type of insurance. Where am I eligible to go or what Mm -hmm. providers are in my network? So that's been a great resource that we've been able to use. It has like national directories. But in California, they have a chat feature, which has been great.
0: Just curious, uh, what is the cost of PrEP on average?
1: It's an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, certainly it depends on where you're um, receiving it, and it can vary tremendously, especially around the world. Um, you know, the vast majority of our patients are either getting it for free or under $50 a, a month with their insurance plan. Um, some people do have high deductible plans, um, and then if they're accessing the copay assistance program, you can get those deductibles uh, reimbursed. Um, I would say most patients are not paying very much for the medication, but I know there's some exceptions to that. And there are some people who fall between the cracks, um, and we do have other options in those situations as well. So, I-
0: so going back to those who might be more at risk, and I, and I know that that falls into different categories—socioeconomic or you know, race, gender, uh, behavior—but to look at it from the perspective, if you if you don't have, say, for example, health insurance, and you want access to prep, and then it becomes cost prohibitive, when how do you? Then access it, or is it impossible? Or where are we at with ensuring that you know certain populations do have access, regardless of uh, your financial background? That is very heavy and loaded question, too. By the way, yeah. and and I'm going to direct it to Felipe, who yeah.
3: yeah. Um, So yeah, Jonathan was mentioning some of the assistance programs. So Gilead does have a program for people who um, are uninsured or don't have Truvada coverage that pays for the prescription in full. But the challenging part with that is that you still need a provider and a prescription. So sometimes if cities or counties don't have free clinics like uh, Magnet or City Clinic, um, then actually finding a provider that will do sliding scale or something may be more challenging. Um, but there is programs for uninsured folks, and that's actually how the bulk of undocumented folks are able to access PrEP. So um, there are misconceptions that, you know, it is a very expensive medication when you look at kind of the retail price, but there are so many assistance programs. Uh, medi or Medicaid also covers the prescription pool, which is typically for low-income folks. So Again, going back to those kind of like perceptions of cost, so people who are uninsured or on Medi-Cal can access the prescription for free um, or access the medication for free. And then there are assistance programs available for Medicare clients, um, so for some of our elders, but those are more um, private foundation funds because you can not actually use the assistance programs with uh, federally sponsored insurances. Um, and, yeah, the copay assistance that is available for people who are privately insured um, in our program, the vast majority of people pay nothing and there's very like there 's a small percentage of people that may have out of pocket costs if they 're kind of in this kind of small space where they 've exhausted their assistance they may not be eligible for some of the other assistance, so they may have a copay like towards the end of the year but it 's a very small percentage of folks that actually end up paying anything for it
0: so to to piggytail on that and um, in If the accessibility is there, yet the CDC has has data that uh, they point out that 7% of those who should be on PrEP are are not on PrEP. And so kind of going back to your prevention or uh, prediction tool in which this tool could uh, really help physicians or um, health practitioners refer patients who are up to three times more at risk right to for for new or hiv infections or transmission so why do you think that it's such a well one the cdc is reporting such a low number or percentage of those who should be on prep and if we if we do have a prediction tool that can help those who are three times more at risk i mean that that number could it uh, we could really fill in the gap is what i'm trying to get at
1: yeah no for sure i mean i think the cdc numbers are are sobering Uh, you know estimating you know some estimates less, fewer than 10% of the patients who may benefit are, are on PrEP. Um, there was some other data more recently that we're probably doing a little bit better job in urban areas, especially among our, our men who have sex with men, but still, you know, 25, 30%, not great. Um, you know, I think it also, there's huge geographic disparities too, in how people are accessing PrEP, you know, places like San Francisco, I think we're a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of awareness and, and campaigns about PrEP than maybe other parts of the country or definitely than other parts of the country. You know, I think again, I, the, we really need to normalize this as part of kind of routine healthcare, Mm. um, you know, similarly what we would do with birth control right? It's just a discussion that providers need to be having with their patients. Um, and you know, I think our tool is, is, one piece of that, I think this this is a, a not there's not going to be a simple answer, but certainly anything we can do to help facilitate those discussions. You know, you have a 25 year old who maybe has had gonorrhea once or twice, um, and it was treated for syphilis a couple years ago, and comes into the doctor because they sprained their ankle, and it's a busy urgent care practice. That provider might not be thinking about taking a sexual history or or you know testing for HIV or prescribing prep. And our hope is that a tool like this would then prompt that provider to say, hey, oh, I should be having that conversation. I need to to ask those questions, and then really facilitating and making it easy for them to refer and start on, on pre-exposure prophylaxis.
2: So is there competition, alternatives to PrEP,
1: um, other options? So... sorry (laughs) get excited Uh, so 2019 we have a lot of options uh for uh hiv prevention both behavioral and biomedical hiv prevention uh prep is is i think one of our our most powerful and important ones certainly we have others uh Post-exposure prophylaxis: so someone who isn't on prep but has an exposure to HIV identifies that they may have been exposed, can start medications within 72 hours of that exposure and take it for 28 days, and that significantly reduces risk from HIV from that exposure. Many of those folks will start on post-exposure and then continue on and stay on it as as pre-exposure, uh, especially if it's an ongoing risk. Um, I think another uh, strategy for HIV prevention that is worth highlighting is is treatment of HIV. So diagnosis and treatment of HIV, we know that when people are on treatment and have an undetectable viral load which is the majority of our patients who we have in care um, do not transmit the virus so people who are undetectable are untransmittable so the undetectable virus is does not get transmitted to others and so increasing uh, diagnosis uh, and improving access to HIV treatment is an important prevention strategy uh, to go along with PrEP and PEP and condoms and needle exchange programs and all the other strategies that we have.
0: Felipe, I'd love to hear, you know, from your perspective and doing a lot of outreach and, and being a part of community is the, uh, the, I think what we're getting at as far as those who should be on PrEP are maybe not on it because there's such, there's still the stigma and a lot of disparities. Um, what are your, what are you seeing? What are you experiencing as far as, uh, you know, folks and, and their relationship to to PrEP? Is it much more? I think in the uh, maybe in the LGBTQ community and this is just a personal opinion that like Dr. Volk said we have education here in San Francisco we have a lot of advocates who are advocating for it um but for those who need the information or the education you know what are some of the things that you might hear out there from someone who is afraid to talk about themselves or or get prep or, or get information
3: yeah um at our clinic where Lucky in a lot of ways because we are a specialized sexual health clinic. So when people come to us, that's what we're doing. We're talking about sex. We're talking about who and how you're having sex um, and everything associated with that. So every opportunity when someone comes, we're talking about PrEP. If there's ever someone who's negative and not taking the medication, that's an opportunity for us to talk to them about it. Um, If someone is living with HIV, we can still talk to them about it because our model is – You're talking to one person, but that person has a community, has a network who may benefit from that information. So we're always talking about it. Um, Some of the things that we've seen or the way that we talk about it is someone may be kind of like on the fence or ambivalent to see like if it actually works for them. Um, And what we tell folks is that the great thing about PrEP is that you can try it for yourself, see how it works. Um, You can try it daily. You can try it event based depending on how often you're having sex or how many partners you have. Um, And you can see if it fits, you know, like try it on, see if it fits, if you like it, keep on it. And if you don't, there's no harm in kind of stopping. Um, And one of the opportunities that we see is that um, there are folks who are not bringing up that conversation to their provider. And the provider is not bringing it up because they're focusing on other things. So then the conversation is just never had, you know, so there's like all these opportunities, but you may be on something else. And then you just don't get a sexual history. You just don't talk about it. Um, and there's a lot of power dynamics that come with like being a patient and seeing your doctor. So sometimes if they don't bring it up, then you just have this idea that, oh, maybe it's not important. Or if. You bring it up and then it gets shut down because you're being you're talking about something else. Then you're like, oh, well, I'm going to take the lead and just follow kind of what they're saying. So I think there are ways to improve kind of the experience of a client um, in these private practices. But it's hard because if you don't have like sexual clinics or sexual health clinics in your area, then there's kind of a desert of where you can actually go to talk to someone about it. Um, so we always kind of tell folks that yeah try it see if it works out some of the kind of non-clinical side effects that we see is that people once they're on the medication they're able to try different things you know they may try bottoming for the first time because now they have that kind of sense of relief that they're being protected they may try different types of relationships you know like they may open up their relationship or try different things so it allows people to kind of feel secure because they are being protected, um, and kind of trying out different things and feeling and kind of getting that aspect of PrEP. That's not really like clinically driven, but we know they're actually, I'm lying. There are studies that show that being on PrEP lowers your depression because you're, you're, you're able to do more, you know, you're able to go out and have like put HIV in the back of your mind in a certain sense, um, which is kind of how much we progress from like where we first started with kind of the epidemic to where we are now, where people can, at least in San Francisco where it's so prominent are able to not think about HIV in that way anymore.
0: I, I want to add to that. I mean, you mentioned um, uh, clinics, you know, and, and I would Im- in, not talking about like San Francisco, but even like 80 miles east of here, or go south or you go into this much smaller cities in another state you know, where these clinics don't exist, and then it's harder for you to come out. I mean, these are some of the topics and issues that I think impact um, when it's coupled with the stigma that would reduce the opportunity for you to, to, to get knowledge on PrEP, or even understand and know what a prediction tool could mean. So we, we could see a prediction tool being used when you're at the doctor's office. But how does a tool like that get deployed to, um, you know, the rest of the community that might even have you know, limited access to clinics or or practitioners who aren't in, you know, a nice air conditioned office?
1: Yeah, I mean, so certainly, you know, I think we're very fortunate in an integrated system, like Kaiser Permanente, where we have the pharmacy that's integrated with the lab, which is integrated with the, the clinical care. So all of the data is kind of Together. Um, So it allows kind of for very um, kind of robust prediction models using our medical record. Uh, we found though that even kind of simpler prediction tools um, that did not have all of the pharmacy data and other things that we had access to actually also did very well at predicting HIV infection, um, and some of those tools I know are being um, uh, explored at other healthcare systems around the, the country as well um, It does require you know i think one of the li- there 's a couple limitations of this type of tool um, one is that it does require someone to be accessing care so if someone 's never gone to the doctor if you have a healthy twenty one year old who 's never seen the doctor before there 's not going to be any data in the medical records for us to then be able to assess risk for HIV, you know, if they've never been tested or never, you know, been seen or we don't have demographic data. Um, Similarly, another area where our model, um, I think... struggled is predicting hiv for for cis women for women i think largely because many of the risk factors uh for hiv acquisition for women may be related to their partners uh risk factors which would not be captured in this type of model as well um you know i think certainly the hope is that this uh, addresses some of the the provider barriers to facilitating these conversations to um addressing patients concerns about perceptions of cost and and knowledge um but certainly um other tools are going to be needed as well. I think at the end of the day, providers just need to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. They need to ask, you know, what types of sex people are having and with whom. Um, otherwise, we're not going to be able to, to identify all the folks who could benefit from this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Be- before the program, Dr. Folk, you and I were
2: talking a bit about kind of the next stage of taking this data and then kind of operational uh, use of it or however that tr- would translate and I guess those those dealings with patients and other things. But is there also further I mean this data will continue to be accumulated. Are there conversations with other parts of the country where they' all they also maybe have some you know integrated systems where they 've got lots of big data and can really start to supersize this yeah that's what we 're doing
1: okay. and in particular're we're, we're, um, um, my colleagues and I are looking to partner with um, medical records that are comprehensive but also have different populations who may be at risk for hiv maybe more women who are uh, getting infected with hiv so we can develop a model specific to women mm-hmm. um, the about 90 percent of our infections are among men uh, and because of the smaller number of women we weren't able to develop a, a model specific for that population um, i know there's a lot of interest in using this type of modeling in other parts of the world as well and we do this, you know, I think, you know, we just so folks are aware, we use this type of uh, modeling in lots of other areas of medicine. Mm-hmm. Every day, I use these models um, in my clinical practice when I'm seeing patients, for example, with cardiovascular risk disease scores. So if I'm looking at patients and I want to know if they would benefit from aspirin or medicine for cholesterol, we have prediction models that look at age and diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia and assign a risk score that tells me, okay, these are the patients that may benefit from these interventions. And so this is something that we do every day in clinical practice. And again, when we see these models, it has to be a discussion with patients about risks and benefits and, and, and assessing patients individually. Visual risk says so not everything is right for everybody um, you know i think there's you know clearly uh, sensitivities in particular about hiv that may not be present for other things like you know cardiovascular disease and as i mentioned no model is going to be perfect so we're going to be people who are picked up in the model who may not benefit from prep or may not actually be at risk for hiv um, but the thought is that this is a conversation that providers would then have and it needs to be a, um, a more nuanced discussion
0: Felipe, what are your thoughts? We've been talking about this prediction tool, and for mm-hmm. someone who's doing the, the outreach and communication, um, and, and, and involved in an organization that's a, a leader in the Getting to Zero campaign, um, I guess the big the big question is from the social side the social the social impact. We talked we kind of glazed over the demographic of those who. Uh, might be at risk might be more at risk with the data that kaiser's been able to come up with but we really haven't gotten specific and hardcore about who those people are like who's who's really at who's three times more at risk and how are we reaching out to them and so you, if we could take this prediction tool out into the community what do you what do you think we could do what would be the impact
3: yeah i think for us um some of our outreach efforts like when they get to the clinic we'll take care of them and that's like the easy part you know once they're with us that's the easy part but the challenging part is how do we get them to us so some of the strategies that we've been doing is actually going to those spaces so having like on-site presence at sf state at city college um in different, like, organizations and collaborating with them to provide, like, more on-site support and on-site presence to be able to link folks to providers. So whether that's us, whether that's Kaiser, whether that's City Clinic or other private practices, um, being a physical presence um, has helped us a lot in terms of just being getting that awareness out to those communities for folks who may benefit from it. Um, what we use... Um, so. We have a tool that looks at people to help them stay on it. So, you know, one aspect of it is getting people the prescription, but the other part is having that be integrated into their life and having them maintained on it. You know, like you're getting tested every three months, but taking a pill daily or taking it um, as needed um, for sexual encounters can be challenging if you have all these other things going on in your life. So some of the things that we've identified um, For our prep case management that we built out intentionally to support folks in our prep program, is around like housing status. Like if you're unstably housed, like that's going to be a factor for you to be able to stay negative, to stay on the medication, um, substance use, behavioral history, uh, demographics. Like younger folks um, who may have more challenges adhering to medications, and for different communities. Like if you're worried about your immigration status, taking a pill every day may not be the most important thing to you right now. So how do we support folks holistically so that? prep can be integrated into their life and it's not just something that they are taking as part of their like daily like packages you know so we've identified like different factors that we use with our case manager to be able to reach out to folks to provide more wraparound services um, and so that all the other areas that may be more pressing can be addressed so then now you can focus take your pill and have all the fun that you want
0: it's quite exciting. I mean, throughout the, the thirty minutes or so that we've had this conversation, I think we go back to what you're both really saying, which is you're doing the work to normalize, you know, this this part of our of our human population in preventing HIV transmission that um, we've gotten to this place. And going back to a question that John had asked, are there, are there uh, other alternatives to prep? Is there competition? Um, What's where's the advancement in terms of the efficacy of where we were before, where we're at now and then Dr. Volk saying, like, it's going to get to a place where it's like, you know, birth control pills. Um, yeah. it, it, uh, talk where, talk where, about that. That's where
1: I'm envisioning this in a handful of years, right? So for from 2012 to two weeks ago, October 3rd, we had one drug that was FDA approved for pre-exposure prophylaxis, a drug called Truvada. Uh, again, a fixed dose combination of two different meds. Uh, The FDA approved a a second medication called Descovy, uh, which is very similar, but a different formulation of the Tanoffir just a couple of weeks ago. So we now have two FDA-approved medications. Uh, Descovy has only been studied in uh, men who have sex with men and transgender women, and that's the the population it was FDA-approved in. Um, But there are uh, intravaginal rings that have gone through phase three clinical uh, testing. There's long-acting injectable PrEP that's injected uh, every couple of months, so you don't have to be taking a pill Every day, um, there's interest in implantable prep. You know, can you put an implantable, kind of a small little implantable device in the, you know, in the arm that you could replace once every year or every couple of years? Can you combine prep with birth control? You know, so this field is is at its infancy, and I think having more choices is going to be really exciting. I think you know, when patients come in and you say, do you want option A or B or C or D, and empowering people to kind of choose what's right for them is going to help increase um, uptake and, and adherence, as you were saying. And I I think certainly one of the challenges, you know, you hear a lot of PrEP is more than 99% effective. It's an incredible medication, but we're still seeing infections. And a lot of the infections that we're seeing are in people who either are prescribed PrEP and never pick it up or start it and then go on and stop it. So we're not staying on PrEP throughout periods when they may be at risk for HIV. And so I think that's a really important point. Um, And just to add to what you were saying before, I think, you know, normalizing PrEP with things like the prediction tool is going to be really important. I've had many conversations with patients, especially early on, kind of 2013, 2014, where I'd be talking about the clinical trial data supporting PrEP and how effective it was. And, you know, people's eyes glaze over and it's not very powerful. And then, you know, people have a best friend or a sexual partner who says, hey, I'm on PrEP. Why are you on PrEP? And that's much more impactful for people to see their peers, the people who they're like, that person's like me and they're on this. I probably should be thinking about this too. And that's, Way, I think way more important than any of the clinical trial data that we can share with patients.
0: We'll open up uh, questions from our audience for our guests. So if you have a question um, for Dr. Volk or, or Felipe, we'll take them. Anybody right. have a question?
2: We have one right here. Question here. You mentioned um, Discovy and its and its recent um, FDA approval. What what is the basic difference between say Discovy and you know what does it widen who can take, um, follow prep or take prep and, you know, what, what are the main differences between the two? That that are, what are those distinctions?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So there was a large randomized control study of men who have sex with men and transgender women. Um, over five thousand people, half got Truvada and half got, half got this new medicine Descovy. I think the the big take home point, honestly, that it, I took from this is they both work incredibly well. There was one infection in each group with people who had good drug levels. So both these drugs are incredibly effective. We have two really really good medications for pre exposure prophylaxis now. Um, in terms of um, side effects and tolerability, uh, both medications were very well tolerated, stopping the medications because the side effects was rare. Um, there was a slight uh, improvement in decreases in, re- in kidney function with the newer drug, the Descovy, and, um, and small decreases in bone loss with the Descovy, about 1%. Um, however, in the new drug, there was actually more weight gain, so about two pounds of weight gain relative to the old drug, and increases in cholesterol. So you have a little bit of improvement in kidney and bone function, but you have increases in weight and, and increases in cholesterol. I think a couple of things that I think are really important for me is the old drug. If people's kidneys were not working normally, we could not use it, especially once it got down to a certain level. And with this new drug, we can actually use um, this medication at um, down to a pretty kind of significant amount of kidney impairment. And so there are people who we could not use that old drug who we now can use this new one. And for people who maybe had osteoporosis or risk factors for bone disease, uh, this is certainly probably a a really good option for us to be considering. Uh, But it's not been studied, unfortunately, yet in in women or for um, on-demand or event-based prep, which which, uh, Felipe was mentioning. I have
2: what might be an odd question, but just because it gets more almost into a political arena. But that is, both of you are involved in organizations or even actively yourselves putting out information and trying to share information on on a w- really a wide variety of a- aspects of this. We've seen in in sexual education campaigns across the country over the past several decades there've been very organized forces with counter-messages, or very, I think most of us would agree, um, counterproductive messages, you know, the whole abstinence-only sort of stuff that's been pushed in a lot of schools. Um, is there anyone pushing a counter-argument for whatever it might be? They don't think men should have sex at all with, with other men or whatever? Or uh, is this really just pretty much a one-sided, this information is getting out and there's not a pushback? Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, I think um, pretty early on to when kind of PrEP was approved back in 2012, there was a lot of perceptions and a lot of scapegoating of people who use PrEP um, for the rise of STIs that has been gradually growing like over time, um, which was not true. Um, But there was that messaging that if you give someone this prevention medication, that everyone is going to stop using condoms. Um, and then that's just going to escalate like the rise in STIs even further, um, which is not true. Like we, what we know is that people are routinely getting tested, so we're uh, people are getting tested more now than ever before because of prep. So we're able to kind of catch infections earlier on to cut that chain of infection earlier on, um, and people continue their condom use similarly when when they were off of PrEP to when they get on it. So depending on someone's relationship to condom use, that doesn't really change just because you have a new medication. Um, But there was a lot of messaging from different organizations that were kind of trying to put PrEP as the issue for the rise in STIs, but that messaging at least hasn't been powerful. Um, But that does kind of go into um, parts of the country that may not have great messaging or um, organizations that are kind of like leading campaigns to educate folks on it um, the other thing that was happening pretty early on is just people's trust with the medical field with these prevention medications um, people thinking that they were being guinea pigged into something that wasn't going to work or that five, twenty, ten, twenty years down the line we're going to find out is having like negative impact on people's bodies but that again isn't true um and uh to what jonathan was saying uh when you have people in community and you have peer leaders that are able to talk about their experiencing experience on it that really negates a lot of those like harmful messages but sometimes the impact in certain communities is still there so it just takes more work to build that trust um in trans communities too there were a lot of conversations around like interactions of prep and hormones which now with Truvada, we know it doesn't impact people's prevention levels, but that was also something that it was hard if you weren't from that community to be able to speak to how it interacts. Um, and a lot of trust needed to be built within those communities too. Yeah, I think that's um, you know, certainly the concern about uh... I heard a lot
1: early on, and I think it's important to kind of uncouple this. PrEP is not designed to prevent STIs, right? PrEP is for HIV prevention, and it works really well. I Certainly, I do have conversations with all my patients about prevention of other sexually transmitted infections, and we certainly see a lot of them, uh, including uh, hepatitis C as well. So these are important conversations to have, but I think that's separate from the HIV prevention piece. I'm
0: halfway through Melinda Gates' book, The Moment
1: of Lift, right now. So um, I'm thinking about global health in terms of PrEP, and I'm just curious how much research or is there an organization like the Gates Foundation or somebody who's actually also checking out some of these longer exposure, these these
0: PrEP that could be, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, but not the pill form, but other forms of PrEP in in Africa.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a big interest uh, in other parts of the world. So a lot of the early prep studies, some were done in the, the U.S. and and S- S- South America. Um, there's been studies in Asia and a lot of studies in, in Africa as well, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and uh, you know globally, uh, certainly uh, uh, women are um, have very high incidence and in, in prevalence of HIV, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, and so there's a lot of interest in prevention there.
0: This is a question and related to um, you know sex ed or education to to uh, adolescents or anyone who's entering in the age of um becoming sexually active and there used to be a very basic narrative that if you are sexually active you should uh, you know protect yourself and and use condoms or if uh, preventing you know uh, pregnancy then use birth control pills So is it safe to say then if you're sexually active and you want to prevent, you know, HIV transmission, go ahead and and get on PrEP regardless of gender, um, age, race? I mean, do we have enough data to at least say we recommend uh, PrEP to be used? You know, here are the the folks who should be using it. And I I would imagine that 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 prediction tool tells you who's at risk. But what's the general...
1: So if I'm seeing, um, we've been offering PrEP for at, to our adolescents um, for several years now, and I feel very strongly about that. I, I, uh, our uptake of PrEP is, is much lower than we would like, and I think that's been true in other settings as well. We're not um, finding our 15-, 16-, 17-year-olds are not necessarily coming in to see us. Uh, we have some, uh, but certainly if I'm seeing folks who are sexually active, not using condoms consistently, or not using condoms all of the time, I should say, I would want to be having that conversation about prep um you know obviously there's some um additional challenges sometimes as far as accessing prep, but we're we're able to do it yeah,
3: um I think there often are is that perception of like if you're if you don't talk about it it's not going to happen, and with like younger folks, um like if you don't talk about sex, they're not going to have it, and that's not the case, and we know that. I think the youngest person that we've enrolled into our program was fifteen at the time um and San Francisco Unified School District has like great like wellness centers where people are able to talk to people uh, or talk to staff around like sexual health related things, um, and in some of the high schools they are offering prep, um, and yeah, as soon as people start kind of engaging with sexual health, like that's a perfect opportunity to talk about prep, to talk about like different prevention methods where that's like HIV or like pregnancy, um, because we know that. They will still benefit from it. Um,
1: mm-hmm. I mean, we certainly are seeing STI uh, uh, diagnoses, so gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, herpes in our 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds. And that's a very kind of – should be an, a, a quick uh, next step to then be talking about HIV risk and, and prevention opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think adherence in particular in that and in our, for our, our younger folks is 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 especially challenging and and sometimes people need uh, quite a bit of support in terms of staying on medic- staying on the medication and persisting on it
2: and can a fifteen sixteen seventeen year old get prep without their parents knowing
1: yes yeah through um, same, similar to they would for for birth control or for treatment for sexually transmitted infections mm-hmm
0: question for Felipe, and I mentioned the Getting to Zero campaign. Um, just curious where we're at with the campaign in general.
3: Yeah, with Getting to Zero, um, there are a lot of different work groups that have been actively working um, on the prevention side, on the treatment side, on like wraparound services. Um, And I know there's a lot of, like, momentum, um, especially with this uh, new year coming in to kind of see where we're at with the numbers. We know last year's numbers, there were less than 200 infections in San Francisco, so we know we're doing better. But for the first time, um, Latinx folks um, had higher numbers than white folks, um, and uh, the numbers for the black community have never really lowered. So we know we're doing some stuff, but are we kind of, like, being able to support the folks who are being impacted the most? Um, So the foundation um, is doing different things to kind of center different communities most impacted by HIV. So our black community and our Latin community. Um, So there are more intentional efforts being done because as we get closer to zero, the the work becomes harder. You know, like because you're serving folks who have different priorities, different things going on, harder to kind of like more work that's needed to be done to be able to reach those communities. Um, but San Francisco is stepping up to it, um, and it'll be great to see as other cities and other states adopt getting to zero models, seeing how the progress that they're making.
2: You know, we kind of talked earlier about some folks who, who wonder, who, you know, who thought, oh, PrEP, that's going to make people engage in riskier behavior, and, you know, the all SDD, SDIs issue. Um, but I wonder, on, on, I guess I keep going back to the political angle of it. Is there a danger of, for example, city governments and, and state governments, you know, reducing funding, thinking, okay, this is being taken care of, and, and uh, them losing interest as they see those numbers go down? Mm. So it should be a great success, and, and a. a, a, a plan for the future kind of becomes an exit strategy, which Americans are really good at.
1: This is where advocates are incredibly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. important yeah. And, and our community and, and is 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 mobilized to to advocate. Um, and I think right now it does a very good job at this.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, but I certainly in terms of uh, funding for research and other things, that's a, a concern, you're kind of a victim of your own success. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: As we wind down, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. It sounds like we've come a long ways, and it sounds like we have even more exciting um, a- advancement and progress with regards to you know, the fight against HIV infections and transmission. Uh, what are your kind of wrap-up uh, feelings or, or thoughts as far as the near future looks like and maybe end with like what what the end all looks like for you with regards to, you know, the fight against HIV infection, I guess, I guess like in hearing you, I see within years that, you know, we have no new infections and um, we totally completely understand and embrace, you know, something like pre-exposure prophylaxis and preventing HIV infections. And we're just much um, healthier people. So we'll start with Dr. Volk and Felipe. And then of course, John, you may ask add if you'd like <laughs>
1: i'm optimistic yeah uh, but i think it's definitely uh, we have uh, several challenges you know i think we have the tools now we really do between prep and treatment as prevention um, and we have the tools to really make huge impacts in, in the epidemic and and really really uh, reduce the number of new infections the Challenges. I think we still need to, as a community, figure out how we're going to reach the folks that we're missing. And I I agree with Felipe in that uh, some of the folks that, as we kind of get more and more people on the medication, the people that we're missing are are probably going to become a little bit more challenging to reach those last final folks uh, who may have competing interests like homelessness or substance use or mental health or dealing with uh, lots of stigma uh, in their community. Uh, And we really need to be working as a community to address all of those other issues. Um, Because if we don't... You know, the medication piece is easy. You know, my piece is a physician prescribing the medicine. It's well-tolerated, you know, probably as well-tolerated, if not better than aspirin. So the the medication piece is not the hard part. It's helping us uh, get this medication to everyone who could benefit and stay on it.
3: Yeah. I think um, in terms of looking at the future um, with prevention and PrEP, Um, Definitely collaborations is a big thing, like being able to collaborate with other organizations that may serve communities that may benefit from PrEP and getting sexual health discussions into those spaces. Um, Collaborating outside of San Francisco, too. Like San Francisco is doing good, but, you know, what does it look like in the East Bay, in the South Bay, in the Peninsula, in the North Bay? And being able, like we know people may live in different areas, but they come to San Francisco to see their partners. They come to... Um, go out at night and things like that so it's not just limited to like we're not in a bubble even though we see ourselves as a bubble Mm -hmm. all the time so being able to have those collaborations and to build capacity in other places like it doesn't make sense why someone who lives in Contra Costa needs to come all the way to San Francisco for their care because there's no providers over there Um, or people drive from the Central Valley Um, three hours for a 20-minute appointment because they don't have a provider that they can see locally. So definitely, like, collaborations and building out capacity in areas that would benefit from having similar services.
2: I do tend to be optimistic about things, but, um, you know, there were other diseases we thought were gone, eradicated, vaccines had taken care of them. And then you have this huge movement to simply say, I don't believe any of the science, even though the science continues to get better and better on vaccines, for example. Um, so I, I just kind of maybe I'm, my, the pessimistic side of me is, is always that there's, there's always that disinformation possibility that can really undercut and hurt so many people, mm-hmm. um, even on such an important, you know, movement like this.
0: I, I, uh, measles?
2: <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs>
0: Uh, I, I you bring up some some great points that I think is deserving to at least answer those questions. we head into 2020, um, a presidential election year. And, uh, you know, this program is known to be a little bit political. So I, I have to ask because it sounds like, <laughs> That's you know, well, if, if we're being if we're being optimistic, right? And if we have the medicine. But what we're missing here is the the vehicle to get it to everyone, and sometimes we it's effective and some in some places where it's not and I would guess that uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, policy and then with policy, you need leadership. Um, if we were at the equality town hall and there were all twelve you know Democratic candidates um, <laughs> who were here today and we were to ask them a question about prep access. Uh, I guess what would what would that question be from 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 you to to the candidates? And I only ask this just because yesterday we had a program about Syria in which the two filmmakers said we would have asked them what they would do about, um, you know, uh, foreign policy. So in regards to HIV, AIDS, and, and PrEP, what, what would you ask? And maybe maybe it's not the Democratic candidates. Maybe it's everybody. Maybe in- include the current president, if you wish.
1: You know, I think you know, one piece, obviously, is, is what are we going to be doing in terms of creating programs that are going to fund and help? pay and support for these medications and these treatments. You know, states have kind of stepped up, you know, places like California have stepped in, but certainly um that doesn't help people in other parts of the country that may not have states that are doing so. Um another piece is what are they doing to address some of the um the structural barriers and, and the stigma as well in terms of um you know, addressing homophobia, transphobia, um, addressing uh, hom- homelessness, substance use, I think all of those pieces are going to have to go together. I think, you know, I think one of the challenges with HIV in particular is you can't separate this disease from all of the other social cultural factors that, that um, contribute to, to risk for this infection. And so it really needs to be a holistic approach. So I'd want to know how they are addressing those other, other aspects that contribute to
3: our, our patients' risk for HIV. Yeah, I think uh, usually when we talk about kind of like bigger picture things, um, I always talk about health care for all. Um, I think that's something that we need to continue pushing for, making sure that people have access to providers um, and can get these prescriptions and get these medications um, independent of citizenship status, independent of like employment status, like you should have health insurance and be able to use it and not be deterred by uh, to use it by having like high deductibles or high co-pays. Um and then the other aspect is the education side like how can we integrate good up to date sexual health conversations in our schools from k through twelve in colleges so that people have baseline information so they know what even looks what does like hiv risk involve you know like some people don't even have that basic information because all they're getting is absent in space like messaging so how can we really get into the school systems and integrate sexual health discussions with kind of the best up-to-date information that we have
0: so incredible so incredible thank you to you both for being here today and for sharing all the knowledge and all the work that you do
1: my pleasure
0: Dr. Jonathan Volk of Kaiser Permanente and Felipe Flores of uh, San Francisco AIDS Foundation, thank you all for being here for the Michelle Miao Show. We have great, incredible programming coming up in which you can check the schedule at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Next week, we have Nancy Schwartzman, who is director and filmmaker of... Uh, Roll, red, roll. Roll, red, roll. It's a lot of R's for <laughs> someone that English is the second language. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Nancy, it, it, you know, it's an incredible what she did as a filmmaker and also an activist in being essentially a whistleblower. The uh, the Steubenville, Ohio case of the star football players and the sexual assault case on a young woman in which cell phone video footage was shared on social media, um, but that case went all the way, you know, to, uh, the, the two young men who then weren't necessarily, uh, what's the word? I, I, I don't want to use punish, but their, their sentence was, was very short and it, it, it hit on this conversation of, you know, the boys will be boys culture. And so we're going to address the sexual assault cases in this country and how they get treated in the court systems. So if you have a chance or have time, come join us. for Nancy Schwartzman and uh, any other program that might be of interest to you. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank you. Thank
2: you. We're all done? We're all done. Okay. (laughs)